Welcome to Stories from Every Day. I'm Liam Cosma, and this is episode four, Empathy Through Virtual Reality. Today, I'm talking with Zach Murphy, a documentary filmmaker. Thanks for joining me. We were fighting over a hatchet for about 45 minutes, and then he chased me through the desert uh, with a gun for another 45 minutes. We saw this elephant struggle to kind of accept this prosthetic. I was like, wow, that is something that I want to get involved with. Welcome again to episode four, Empathy Through Virtual Reality. Today, I'm talking with Zach Murphy about his experiences as a filmmaker. Zach has made it his life's work to make a difference in the world by sharing stories through film and emerging virtual reality technologies. Zach's going to spend some time walking us through how he moved from commercial advertising into a field where he's trying to make a positive change in the world. It involves some incredible stories, including seeing the effects of abandoned landmines on elephants, and another story that involves a truly terrifying personal encounter with an individual in the wilderness. I'll be honest, to me it sounds like something straight out of a horror film. I love this interview because Zach provides an example of how sharing stories can create change in the world. Zach himself is an example of someone who changed his life to pursue something he's passionate about. Before recording, Zach and I discussed the podcast and his work over a few beers in a local coffee shop before walking upstairs to his office. I'll be honest, listening back to the interview reminds me of why I don't drink before recording these episodes. Alcohol makes me talk very fast, and I get very excited. Uh, Also, at 150 pounds, it doesn't take many beers to get me buzzed. Anyway, uh, that aside, really hope you enjoy the episode. You know, I was always interested in in telling stories, um, uh, not only because uh, um, I, you know, was always an illustrator, uh, just found it fascinating to kind of create these worlds, but I was always interested in film, um, especially with uh, my mom. Uh, We we watched movies all the time, and and when she was uh, really sick with ovarian cancer, um, movies allowed her to go to a place that she couldn't go to. Um, I was a caregiver, you know, for, you know, she, she was battling cancer for about six years and then for three years, uh, she couldn't really get out of bed. So for us, sharing stories and watching movies allowed us to go to places that she couldn't go to. And this was something that we always shared. And I was always really, uh, this was, this was our, this was our space, you know? And I started, when I went to school, I started you know, thinking that I, w- I wanted to be a filmmaker. But what ended up happening is the industry changes, technology changes. And all of a sudden, we have all these different opportunities to tell stories and tell stories in totally different ways, whether it's through a podcast or VR or through Facebook or Netflix or short form or on your cell phone for a minute while you're waiting in traffic or whatever. And so I realized that all of a sudden our theater and our way of engaging stories has totally changed. And that's what brought me to University of Washington. And I was kind of trying to figure out how do I how do I ground um, a project that I was working on 
with uh, Apopo, which is a Belgian NGO that uses rats to detect landmines. Um, how do I how do I create a home for this place? Because I wasn't a journalist, and I wasn't, and I was tired of working in advertisement. And so we started to think about how do we pair the academics with, you know, in the study and the and the kind of the the approach to telling new stories in emerging technologies with actual experiences. And a pivotal moment, I think, in my life was uh, when I was moving back home from China and we were trying to figure out how do we dismantle Fly Media at the time. And that was a production company that I that I founded and, and uh, in, in Shanghai. And we 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 tried to figure out how do we how do we get back to the States? And so we went to uh, my uh, my business partner at the time, uh, Lorian Crane, and she uh, we were we were basically figuring out how do we just totally um, bring bring what we were doing back to the states. And so we we took a drive to uh, Arches National Park in Utah, and we wanted to figure everything out because we always kind of go to nature to kind of have these kind of meetings. It's actually the best office that you can. Uh, um, figure these things out, you know, <laughs> there's like, there's no, there's not like four walls and drywall and a whiteboard. It's just, it's just space and, and, and your thoughts. And, uh, what was interesting is, uh, we ended up running into a guy that became a very dark individual and, um, he pulled up, um, and he's been on the road for a while. He pulled up and, and the situation ended up and he ended up attacking me, um, and uh, with a hatchet, or we were fighting over a hatchet for about 45 minutes, and then he chased me through the desert uh, with a gun for another 45 minutes. Wow. And it became this really horrific kind of experience. And the way that, the way that I processed that was I was thinking about what was going on in media at the time with what happens when you run into somebody who's about to do something dark and twisted and, 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 you know, our legal system, you know, you always second guess yourself, you always check yourself, but what happens when you run into an individual who's just incredibly motivated to do something very twisted? And I survived that night, but I was left with the experience of it. And I was always trying to figure out, okay, how do we, how do we share these experiences that we, that we've encountered in our life? And, and and share these kind of stories and figure out how to process them and turn them turn them around and turn them over into something that you can not only sort of form as a as an experience for other people to to gain sort of insight but how do you do something about it you know how do you transition from experience to something that you can share um yeah so what ended up happening is this guy rolls up in a pickup truck and he was very um, he was a guy who had a law degree from Yale and he had an impeccable vocabulary, but he was on the road for a very long time and it looked like he hit a point in life where he was just over it. And the moment, you know, he, he came over to the campfire with a bottle of wine and we were camping in arches in like February. So this is like sub-zero temperatures and... If you don't have the gear to camp in those temperatures, like you don't belong out there. And he had like a Walmart tent and 
found firewood, which looked like it was from, you know, Arizona all the way <laughs> through Utah, you know, and, and just an Nevada protein powder. Like things didn't make sense about this guy. And he approached us and he said, you know, hey, did you hear about those two hikers that got shot in their in their truck? And uh, we were like, no, no, no. And as the night progressed, he he started to kind of reveal a darker sort of perspective and, you know, and things were getting very awkward and he made very um, derogatory statements about women and, and things got very, very scary. And so Lorian at the time, she didn't necessarily know what, what she was feeling or she didn't necessarily trust her instincts. And so what she ended up doing was, uh, she, she kind of went for a walk and then she gra- grabbed the keys to the truck and, and drove off to get more firewood and, and, you know, things, you know, for the, for the night. But then I was left there with this guy and I said, look, I don't trust you. And he turned to me and he was like, I know. And, and all of a sudden the conversation got very serious and I asked him to leave and he wouldn't. And in fact, he jumped over the fire the, the the pit fire and started choking me. And so we ended up wrestling over this hatchet for about 45 minutes and he was biting me, he bit me about 15 times. And, uh, so I ended up overpowering him and kind of throwing him into the fire and then he kicked out. And then I finally sort of got the upper hand on him. And then all of a sudden I was standing there with these two hatchets and this guy. And I asked him, I was like, you're about to do something really sick and twisted. And he was like, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. He apologized. <laughs> Which was the craziest, darkest thing. But all of a sudden, now he's in this position of going, well, the night didn't go the way that he intended. And then all of a sudden, I'm in this position where I'm sitting there in this kind of aggressive sort of power, you know, situation. And and the toxic rush, the, 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 the just the, that situation was so, was so just so overwhelming. I just ran. And... And so I just took off into the desert with these two hatchets and I just ran. And then I could hear as I was kind of running, I could see like I could hear he just walked over to his truck and he got a gun. And then he followed me out into the desert. Now, this is dark, no moon in the black of the desert, just night. And I threw myself underneath these bushes and these trees and this this or actually this kind of large desert shrubs. And then I could hear him like following me. And I could hear his footsteps and he was listening for my breathing. So I tried to like control my breathing. And uh, he, we would just sort of dance around for about 45 minutes in the dark. And so I was listening to him and he was listening for me. And then all of a sudden, Lorian comes back and I see these two headlights on the horizon. Now, all of a sudden, we know what, where everybody is. Because she's coming back to the campsite and I'm faced with this kind of decision of like, should I just stay hidden or, you know, do I rush back and, 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 and save her and grab her? And, uh, so my decision was to, to just say, fuck it, you know? And so I started basically running as fast as I could to those two headlights and I grabbed her and I threw her in the back of the car and, and jumped into the truck and we drove out of arches like faster than hell. It was like 110 miles an hour, like around these windy roads. And she freaked out and she stopped. She's like, what, what happened? What's going on? You know? And I, and I told her the whole story. And as we're getting out of the park, um, the, the sheriff's office or the sort of the, uh, the, uh, yeah, the police or park rangers were there and they intercepted us. And what ended up happening is this guy, 
um, ran over to the ranger station and said that I attacked him, which was really interesting. And he was trying to build a case. And but the police officers, they, they didn't understand. They're like, well, how does a six foot three, 240 pound guy with both hatchets and all of the defensive wounds and 14 bites all over his arms end up like, how do you end up in that situation? So they didn't believe him. And they basically gave us this option. They said, hey, well, you know, you can press charges, but in Utah law says we're going to have to take you both in. And I'm supposed to be on a flight to Shanghai the following week, or you can just walk and let it go. And that was a difficult decision because I just walked. I just said, I have to get back. I have to get back to Shanghai. And so this guy went on his way. We looked it up like the day after, and there wasn't like two campers shot for a 500 mile radius and what was scary about that was that this guy sat down and he said what he was about to do and in this camp in in this campfire scene and he just wanted to kind of engage and let us know and so we were going to go to bed and then all of a sudden we were going to be those two campers and that just blew me away because I couldn't figure out how to process that. I think I had the worst PTSD ever. I was sleepwalking. I would, I would, the last thing I did with the police is I poured water out on the fire. And so for two weeks after I was sleepwalking and pouring water out on my laundry. And, uh, and you know, at the time when I was kind of visiting, uh, when I was visiting, I was staying at my uncle's cause I, I didn't live in the States at the time. And, and he just thought, he was like, what are, what are you doing? Are you, are you like urinating in the room? Like what? Because I'm waking up in the middle of the night and I'm hearing you move around. And then I'm hearing this like a lot of water hit the floor. <laughs> that was, And I couldn't figure it out. And he couldn't figure it out. So finally, he, he sort of did this kind of investigation. And sure enough, I was sleepwalking and I was pouring water out on, on my laundry. And um, so I was processing things in those ways. And that story became... The combination of that experience and just just my sort of, I would say, my foundation with taking care of my mom and story and experience and allowing people to go to places started to kind of germinate like the seeds of, of, of how I wanted to kind of gear the rest of my work for, you know, the rest of my life. And those themes kind of went back into kind of this idea. I knew, I, you know, I thought, well, immediately I'm like, oh, that's a really crazy horror film. We could do a short film. We could do a film. Uh, feature film possibly but I'm like how many movies have we seen where it's like the 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 hikers go on a you know a hike and there's some crazy villain that you run encounter I mean this is just really cliche b-movie crap really but the experience and I was always left with how do how do we share that experience and so that's when I started kind of and I, and I didn't really totally have it formulated at the time. And I, of course, I wrote it as a screenplay and I wrote it as a script. And I, we, we, took all the, we took all the information down. And, but it just wasn't a film. And, and so when I went back to Asia, um, I started to think about the projects that we were involved with, which was uh, um, Apopo and the landmines and the rats that detect landmines. And... and I was thinking, well, maybe there's another medium. Maybe there's another way to share experience. And this is 
kind of interesting because there's a lot of study and a lot of uh, investigation into this idea of what is different from these other emerging technologies like virtual reality. Like how 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 is virtual virtual reality different from video and sort of and as we move away from a, a, a world of frames into this kind of world of encounters um, and I think I'm quoting somebody on on that uh, but I'm not sure who um, we start to think about content totally different um, from a totally different perspective because we're no we're no longer looking at content through this sort of proscenium arch and this isn't necessarily a kind of a rendering or a sort of a subjective, you know, kind of assembly of, of an artist's statement. Instead, what we're trying to do is create these worlds. And I found, I was like, well, maybe I want to build further investigation into this idea of how do we, how do we sort of curate or find these experiences and then figure out how to share those experiences with people so that they can learn from them. And... And so time, you know, time kind of moved on and, 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 you know, and I started uh, my graduate studies at University of Washington and we started to really look at, you know, what is story and what is experience. And uh, Marvin Minsky in 1980, he made a statement, uh, you know, about the, this idea or this notion of telepresence. And Marvin Minsky is this godfather of artificial intelligence at MIT and he's, um, just a genius, uh, but he was talking about this idea that if we could create or if we could develop the technologies and the tools and what was going to happen inevitably um, is to create uh, a way for people to be telepresent into a situation that is, that is incredibly dangerous for somebody to operate in, like a, a very dangerous mine or, or like a nuclear power plant. You know, fast forward 37 years, and now all of a sudden we're in the situation where it's not just necessarily the physical interaction of a dangerous place, but it's also the mental and sort of the emotional, psychological places that we can't necessarily operate in, like a situation um, where you encounter a very dark individual or thinking about somebody who's approaching the end of their life. Or, and then, you know, at the time, I was uh, working with United Launch Alliance, and we wanted to, they launched every single GPS satellite in space, um, and I wanted to connect the story to firefighters, because at the time, Washington was having a lot of fires, and, and I was like, well, you know, who, who relies on GPS? And I'm like, firefighters, and, and so we started with this idea that we were going to tell stories about smoke jumpers and people battling these wildland fires. And it was a great guy. His name is Bill Trahune. He he kind of said, well, I can get you involved with all this stuff. And he's like, well, drive up here. And I was in Colorado at the time. So I drove all the way back to L.A., got all my gear, drove all the way up to Washington. And he was like, yeah, about those wildfires. <laughs> and he, he actually couldn't get me on a plane for all these smoke jumpers and things like this. But he's like, have you thought about uh, EMS? Have you thought about emergency medical services? And I was like, no, but what about the wildfires? And he's like, yeah, yeah, this, this is difficult. It's proven difficult. And he's like, why don't you ride around in the medic unit for six weeks? I said, okay. And that's when I ended up meeting the, the love of my life. And, and uh, she, her name is Karen. And she, we, she was assigned to me to 
deal with me and take care of me. But here I'm, I'm riding around in this medic unit watching this firefighter run into these people's homes at the, the worst scenario. I mean, this is the crisis. It's just the worst situation. There's people that have overdosed. There's people that are having breathing problems, COPD. There's people at the end of their life. There's trauma, you know, and she's running into these places and just inter- in, in it's total intervention. And she's this lifesaver. Um, running into these people's homes and capturing them at their worst and then turning this around and saving people's lives. And one of the things that we witnessed was uh, a double cardiac arrest. And uh, this gentleman's um, mother goes into a cardiac arrest and he calls and he says, I have an elderly mother and she's not breathing. I don't know what to do. And there was all this panic and delay and hesitation. And I heard this dispatch sit there and say, okay, well, you know, is she breathing? You know, it's, it's, you know, it's okay. I need you to start CPR now. And then there was all this delay about getting her out of the chair. And then he couldn't necessarily, he didn't know what to do. So he's waiting. And this is, again, a situation where a dispatcher can't necessarily be present in this moment, but they have to communicate through the phone and it's, and it's chaotic. And he has his son there and, and, And so seconds count here, because if you hold your breath for two minutes, three minutes, I mean, you're not getting oxygen to your brain. You're not breathing. Um, It's very difficult. So this woman is essentially dying. um, And so he starts CPR. And then, of course, he's not doing it fast enough. And she's saying, I need you to push harder on the chest. I need you to, you know, keep up the pace. You know what I mean? Like, you know, 120 beats a minute. And then he gets really tired. And, you know, and he has this and she's like, if you get tired, have your son take over. And then, you know, we got the call. So now all of a sudden we're dispatched. So we're on our way. But then all of a sudden and then I heard this later, especially because we were we 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 reviewed the, the, the dispatch calls. All of a sudden he goes into a cardiac arrest because the engine company shows up and they take over. So then now all of a sudden we have two cardiac arrests that are happening. And so more medic units are dispatched to, uh, and more engines and, and trucks, and, and this is Lacey Fire uh, District 3. And they're all there trying to save these two people's lives. Now, the mother, unfortunately, that evening passed away, but they were able to, to so when we showed up, I, I, filmed, I filmed most of the entire situation. And I, and I was thinking about it. I was like, I was running into this crisis, you know, and filming the, the actual experience of it. And that was such a moving kind of really just a very crazy moment. Normally people don't actually get to film those experiences in the same way that I didn't have a camera, you know, when this guy attacked me and, and there I was filming this, 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 this double cardiac arrest. And what ended up happening is that um, uh, Karen, uh, she ended up um, giving this guy another week, another week with his family and another week to say goodbye to his brother and all of his families. He, 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 he ended up passing away um, only because there was a lot of other health issues that he was, he was struggling with. But he got that week because on that night, both, you know, this kid's father and his grandmother was going to pass away. 
And so there was another experience where I'm like, how do we, how do we, how do we make something more of this? And then fast forward, um, I ended up moving to Seattle and, and, uh, I started, uh, Karen and I started dating and we asked the question, we're like, you know, so many people don't really understand what the fire department does. And I was like, yeah. And again, kind of going back to this idea of like, how do we take people to worlds that they can't necessarily travel to? Uh, like, a uh, like a British period piece, <laughs> you know what I mean? And you're, you know, you, you, you know, I actually, I mean, I hate to admit it, but Pride and Prejudice is probably one of my favorite movies, but, and I watched that a lot with my mom and, and then, or this very twisted encounter with somebody where like, you don't necessarily trust your instinct. And so like, how do you know somebody's about to do something really heinous and, and how do you act on it? Or now all of a sudden I've sort of accumulated this experience, um, involving this guy who, who sort of this total crisis situation where he's trying to save his mom and then he goes into a cardiac arrest. And we started to kind of think about the medium or the tools that we can use as storytellers. And at the time, virtual reality was about to kind of take off. Um, people were investing billions of dollars into this technology, Facebook, Microsoft, you know, PlayStation, all of these big powerhouse players. And, you know, they, they haven't quite bought Oculus yet or Facebook hasn't. And then all of a sudden they pumped a ton of money into making essentially virtual reality an accessible technology. And we've been trying to, you know, explore this whole idea of uh, sort of looking through the viewer, you know, back since the 1700s. Um, but it was now that we had the technology, the platform, the audience, and then people had smartphones and their devices and, and technology in their homes. Now, all of a sudden, this could be a, an, an accessible experience. And when you revisit this idea of telepresence, going back to Marvin Minsky and this whole idea, thinking about how do we experience stories? This isn't necessarily, you know, what I shot during that night with the two cardiac arrests was a representation of, of that moment. And when you edit it and you see it, you know, you look at it differently because it's somewhat removed. This is an artifact. It feels like it's something that, that happened in time. And even though it's very powerful and you watch it, it, it moves you in a different way because you're looking essentially at something that's framed and it's, a, and it's an artifact. It's something that has happened in, in the past. What's different when you start thinking about these ideas in virtual reality is that it allows an audience to own the experience as though they've actually experienced it. So we started thinking about that cardiac arrest and starting to figure out how do we how do we share that and maybe virtual reality is the application so we decided to kind of in that that was our kind of moment of inspiration because what we tried to do was say what if we created a recreated that sort of cardiac arrest based on a true story based on a real situation where we could create that emotional chaos and then give people the skills at the moment and then figure out how to share that. So in the event that they actually witnessed the cardiac arrest, they would know what to do because they've already been there. Like, how do you prepare for something that you don't expect? And that was kind of like the, the first time I was in an earthquake 
in, in Los Angeles. You know, I've been in school and I've been studying these posters and I've been reading, uh, um, you know, what to do, you know, in the event of an earthquake. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I know this shit. You know what I mean? Like, step one, got it, got it, got it. The first time I was in an, uh, I was in an earthquake, you know, I just freaked the fuck out. I just lost my mind. I, like, panicked. I, I ran out of bed. I, like, pulled my whole mattress out. I pulled all my sheets. My sheets were still attached to me. I'm, like, dragging this mattress through the hallway. I'm freaking out, and I end up, like, freaking out and panicking and, and standing underneath a, a chandelier. And I'm, like, so... I'm like, there is a situation where it's like, I've done everything wrong, even though I'm like, yeah, 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 I know this shit. And, and so, but then the second time when the second quake hit, all of a sudden I just held my hand up. I could sense that I'm like, okay, this isn't powerful enough. And I just reached my hand up and I just kept this painting on the wall above my head and I didn't get out of bed. And I was like, that's what we need to do is figure out how could we take technologies like virtual reality and give people the experience or the ability to kind of be telepresent in this experience and then prepare them for things that would help and dramatically improve their life. If somebody starts CPR immediately, if they witness a cardiac arrest, their chances, the, the victim's chances of survival uh, drastically increase. It's almost like you have a 50% chance of survival. And that's incredible. So we shot that whole experience and that's cprsavesvr.com and we shot that whole experience because we wanted to get people prepared for something that they're not expected. They're not expecting. And 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 so that that started to really things started to become clear I think as a storyteller. I started to kind of think, okay, well actually what we're doing is we're creating immersive worlds. And we're bringing, to people, we're bringing people to places that they can't necessarily travel to. And when you, when, you, when you start to think about the potential of that, it's incredible. Um, we immediately realized that we weren't just creating kind of art, but we also needed to kind of get the sort of the scientific community to back what we were doing because it, it's such a new technology. And so the, the partnership of sort of um, scientists and medical doctors thinking about how they could support this idea of story experience and products that really change communities or change community, you know, outcomes like cardiac arrest survival. Um, we started to kind of craft our, our stories with, with this participation. In the middle of that, simultaneously, there was always one story that always touched me. And this story was the, the marker or sort of the pivotal moment in my career, in my life. You know, I was working in advertisement in, in Shanghai and my, my, first, my first kind of job out of school was working with a language learning company or language provider uh, called English First or English Town, depending on what country you're in. And you know, if you try to learn a language like online, the best way to learn a language is actually to transplant yourself to some place where you don't know anybody and you can't communicate with anybody and you probably date a girl that you can't even talk to. And then eventually you just like, you just figure it out. 
you know, and you start learning because you're totally present and you're totally immersed in that world. Well, what happens when you start using technology, you, you need to, again, be telepresent. And so I didn't understand it at the time. I was 25 and all of a sudden where they, I was tasked with this idea of like basically rethinking the future of the product. Like, how do we learn language online? And, you know, when you first look at language learning videos, I mean, these are these are really horrible videos. These are t- terrible videos. These are just like two people sitting around an office table and they're like, would you like to cook dinner tonight? Sure. I would love to cook dinner. Do you like beef? And she's like, no, I like ham. And you're like, wow. Okay. So <laughs> like, how do you, <laughs> how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you pick a, like, how do you date with that language? Like, how do you get a job with that language? How do you, how do you not sound like you need to be medicated with that language? You know what I mean? (laughs) And, and so I was like, why don't we just create this sort of tapestry of sort of, or this sort of character driven world where you follow eight characters and they're dysfunctional and they're human and they've got issues. And it's like eight sort of interwoven sort of characters into this kind of media fabric of culture and experience that sort of evolves over over time and over over a syllabus. So like in the very beginning, we have an introduction of these characters in very basic language, but then they evolve into very complex situations like a anal retentive sort of apartment manager who's a hypochondriac and seems to visit the doctor too many times. But there you get to touch medical, you know, terminology and and routines and repetitions, repetitions and 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 places of the home. And, and so we started to build on that. And I didn't really understand. I was like building an immersive world at that stage. And and so to to kind of fast forward while I was out there in Asia, one of the things that really touched me and grabbed me and really pretty much rocked me in a way that I, 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 I just couldn't really understand or figure out how to process was when I saw the aftermath of an elephant step on a landmine. And when you think about how beautiful elephants are and the fact that they're this dwindling population and they're probably going to die in our lifetime, um, it's incredible to see such an animal, such a beautiful animal with the, the ability to to remember and to imprint and to have complex relationships and to just be so powerful and and majestic and at the same time be so kind of loving and sort of into interface with our species as humans and to just give them just so much, just have this utter neglect where people use elephants to, for illegal logging out in Myanmar and, and, and Laos and, 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 you know, what happens when, you know, it's, it's kind of like when our tractor gets a flat tire, we go fix the flat tire. When your tractor elephant steps on a landmine, you leave the elephant and you go get another one and getting another one illegally probably involves killing an entire pod and, 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 and taking the calves and, and then starting them on a very probably, and usually some people use heroin and methamphetamines to um, develop dependencies and chemical dependencies in these animals so that they work when you want them to work. So we saw this elephant at at this lady's uh, elephant hospital in Thailand and and just outside of Chiang Mai and her name is Sarita Sawala and, and she is 
an incredible woman, a very powerful woman um, involved in, in protecting the and uh, protecting the elephants. And um, when we saw this elephant struggle to kind of accept this prosthetic, I was like, wow, that is something that I want to get involved with. And then I went back and started doing more advertisement work. And I, and I was just, I just, the thing about selling a product is that, you know, you, you, you're very creative and it's very fun and there's a lot of money in that. But when you think about changing communities and changing people's perspectives and what ended up happening is the, the convergence of all of sort of, I think, my experiences, being a caregiver, my mom getting sick, uh, you know, having this uh, elephant experience. And so it became this moment uh, when my mom passed. It became this moment where I basically decided I'm not going to focus on advertisement anymore. And I'm going to focus on creating these experiences and figuring out how to bring people into these worlds and allow them to have that experience as well. And so we started to think about, you know, what are these stories? And so the last project that I was on was, uh, I was doing something with uh, Swarovski, and uh, I can't, still can't say that, <laughs> Swarovski. <laughs> um, I wasn't commissioned by Swarovski, I was commissioned through the artist who was, was commissioned to design these jewel-encrusted bugs $20 million encrusted bugs. And so that, and so that was my last ticket out to Bangkok. And, uh, the project fell through cause it was, it was still a bit strange and it was just kind of a thing. And, and so I, but I was still paid and I used the money. I said, you know what, I'm going to go find these folks out in Thailand. And this, and this, this NGO that I'm talking about is a popo and they use rats to detect landmines and those rats all of a sudden I started thinking about the one film, I think when I, um, one of the films that my mom shared with me a long time ago was Dumbo. And I was just thinking about this rodent leading, you know, Dumbo through the circus. And I was like, man, that's an interesting real life anthropomorphic tale of this rodent and this elephant. And then I just said, fuck it. And then I applied to University of Washington and I was like, I want to house this project because, you know, and, and, and again, we're involved with the Thailand government and we're involved with Cambodia. And, um, and so, they, you know, they're not too keen on journalism and, and, and landmines. And, but, but they are accepting of this idea of being a graduate student with a sort of a story experience investigation into these situations. And so I was like, what if we could create a virtual reality experience that brings people to the K5 belt, uh, which is one of the most heavily land, you know, mined areas in the world. And I think it's about, I mean, off the top of my head, I think it's about a, a 1200 kilometer stretch of land. And there's about 3 million landmines through that area, not to mention all of the UXO that probably covers 60% of Cambodia and repurposed landmines by the Khmer Rouge as well, you know, all throughout uh, Cambodia. And so we started to be like, you know, who's, who's ever been on a landmine field, you know what I mean? And, and is reasonable <laughs> and, not, and not medicated. And, um, well, actually I was, but I wasn't medicated. <laughs> but, 
but but I wanted to tell the story because as soon as I stepped out on the on the K five belt, like the the psychological barriers, it was palpable. Like you could actually feel the pressure and the fear of walking this way or that way. And I was just thinking, and that kind of became the working title of our project, which is kind of an invisible devastation. And in some ways, virtual reality allow is like kind of the perfect medium for this message because it allows us to see things that necessarily that aren't necessarily there and it allows people to be telepresent in a place that you probably wouldn't go to if you were you know saying i mean nobody takes their family on a vacation to come on kids we're going to cambodia what are we doing dad well we're gonna go to the k5 belt son you know (laughs) so and and that kind of really captured it and i think that that's where i'm at now which is is how do we how do we continue to push these experiences forward like a a cardiac arrest and then turn that into something that communities can 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 interact with and and be more prepared how do we get people involved into a topic that everybody's incredibly fatigued with this remnants of war um like landmines. I mean, everything's been forgotten, but it keeps communities stagnant and totally paralyzed. They don't have the, the economic freedoms to just, you know, cultivate their lands in different ways or, 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 um, you know, expand their business. You know, they, they, they can't move forward unless their children or unless they go and find these landmines themselves, which is actually an industry as well. Um, and, and so, and then again, I was sort of thinking about, again, this experience of like, what happens if you meet somebody who's very dark in a very dark place? Like, how do you, how do we begin to have these kind of conversations or have story as a conversation starter in the form of these experiences? And then to turn that around and to figure out how to share it. And I think that that has been kind of the, the, uh, the theme of, of, of some of my work and, and sort of trying to convert experience into a medium that people can engage with. Do you want to say? Sorry. No. <laughs> that was incredible. <laughs> I, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, that was incredible. And um, incredibly, I don't know, insightful and just engaging from start to finish. I do have a question for you, but before I say that, I, I just want to say, I'm incredibly impressed and what amazes me about what you do with, you know, your career is that you've, you know, throughout your life encountered uh, numerous traumatic experiences or, you know, issues like the fact that people don't know how to do CPR, you know, is a problem and it could save lives if we can fix that. The, the fact that there are landmines out here, these remnants of war, you know, devastating these communities is a problem and we need to fix that. And you've, you've taken it upon yourself to find the best way leveraging new technology to fix that problem. And and instead of sitting back and saying, this is somebody else's problem, this is a tragedy, you know, you've you've motivated yourself to go fix that. And I I don't know. It's just it's inspirational to me. Thank you. Um, mm-hmm. I mean it's hard it's hard it's hard work. I mean moving from moving from you know it's hard because moving from advertisement where you're like commissioned with work and you have an advertisement and uh, one of the things I worked on was is pulpy super milky from beep like <laughs> I'm just going to censor that one, yeah. but it was, it was a, it was a company that, and it was a, it was a dairy sports drink and, and it was just like, you know, for the Chinese market. And it was just like, I'm like, what are we doing here? People, this is like a dairy sports drink is like, 
marketing like nuts and gum together at last, you know, so you can get some Wrigley's and some walnuts, <laughs> some almonds and just chew your ass off. Right. And I'm just like, we're trying to sell so many things, but there's so many opportunities when you start thinking about communities and, and thinking about how you can actually, you know, be useful, have purpose. And, and people, there's so many people that have stories and, um, that experiences and, um, one actually, Bill Trehune, this is a this kind of a side note, but he was telling me about a family, a young family that tried to, that bought a house. And then, and then all of a sudden their son, I think it was their son, um, all of a sudden came down with this very rare, started getting really sick and came down with this very rare disorder, uh, which Stanford kind of coined as PANS, PANS disorder, which I, I don't know the, the acronym, but, or I don't know what it stands for, but it's something like a, a psychiatric acute neurological fucking breakdown. I don't know what it is, but it's, I think it's some sort of inflammation in the brain, um, Anyway, they started digging into their home and they realized that there was mildew and mold like inch thick off the studs in the entire frame of the home. And they couldn't go back to the inspector and the inspector didn't find it. And then now all of a sudden they have to disclose this because they've discovered it. They can't go back to the seller. So now all of a sudden they bought a useless home and this... And they're just, they're just screwed. And then, so they go and contact this, uh, this, or this builder. I don't know how they're through the church or something. This builder says, Hey, uh, maybe, maybe we'll build you a new home, you know, but we will, we would like to capture the story. We'd like to share the story because the stories matter. And so Mm -hmm. here's, here's a story like out of nowhere. And I'm just sitting there going, well, not only is that an incredible story, but it's also connected to a pretty pretty significant issue and people have stories to share and and people build communities around stories you know I was thinking about you know the fact that you know why we're even alive on this planet and you know or or why or how people go to movie theaters to get the news you know at one point in time and 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 you know how you know how many how many times did it take for somebody to say don't eat those mushrooms you know what I mean and why you know, from a very, on a very tribal level, like the, the, the sitting around the campfire and telling stories was, was the sort of the key to our survival. So now that we have all these tools and technology at our disposal, it's like, we're not doing anything new here. We're just staying true to ourselves. And, 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 and that's what I love. And that's what, that's what kind of moved me away from, uh, dairy sports drinks. What's interesting to me about this about this technology is, or I wonder, you know, how much value there is in in just creating these generic experiences, plugging people into, you know, a community in, you know, Somalia or or, um, you know, Darfur or something like that, and and just having people live for a few hours, you know, as a villager, you know, somewhere in this rural region, and you know, without necessarily a specific purpose other than to create empathy and to create an understanding of what these people are dealing with. What's it like living in a Syrian refugee camp in Jordan? Um, I don't know. I, I, this technology, it seems to me, has a whole lot of value um, in that way. My, so it's, it's, 
I've been working with a producer, Carmen Elsner, for a very long time, and I, I don't think just saying that she's a producer is doesn't do her justice because um, she's been. We're sort of we have this creative marriage, and um, there isn't there isn't anything that we necessarily send out the door without us going back and forth on. And so we we decided, you know, we've been working together for maybe eight years, and so we decided to kind of just now actually form Murphy and Elsner, and and she's involved in. So she's Austrian. Uh, she lives in London, and then she moves uh, back and forth from Austria to London, and and. She's involved with the integration efforts for Syrian refugees in, in, in Austria. And, and, you know, again, talk about sort of job training for an entirely different world. You know what I mean? And, and you know, all of a sudden, you know, they, they've been on a, a boat. You know, they've, they've risked their lives coming over to, 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 these, to the European shores. And then all of a sudden they're thrown into this way of life and they don't have the same skills. The, the city isn't designed to accept them. And there's also all this fear about, you know, you know, are they terrorists? Um, you know what, and most people are just trying to protect their families, you know, um, and, and provide for their families. And then there's, uh, of course you have, uh, uh, these radicals, you know, um, that are infested in this situation. And so you, you have a loss of trust, uh, you know. But we don't, you know, from the, I guess, from the Western perspective, we don't necessarily understand the journey that they've had to to go through. And this is not a new story. This is not a this is not a new phenomenon. This is this is we've had to do this. I and mean, this is in every single civilization. There has been one mass movement of one population to establish a new home in another place. And there is the fall and rises of empires and communities and countries and nations. And 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 this is not a new story, but understanding one's journey allows us to understand each other and i think when you talk about and they say you know you know maybe vr is the vehicle for empathy um um you know we'll we'll see it, it certainly it certainly allows people to experience things in a different way because i think people have developed um a sensitivity towards uh, filmed content as being sort of manipulated or advertisement. There's a sort of an inherent distrust there, or it's it's a point of view. But virtual reality or other technologies allows people to experience things for themselves, so it allows them to make their own conclusions. Um, if we had to ride on the top of a train all the way through South America and Mexico to get to the U.S. border and risk our lives. And if you could experience that, um, would that make you think differently about building a wall? Who knows, you know? And, and so I think that, that Facebook is obviously investing billions of dollars into thinking about moving away from worlds of frames and pictures and, and thinking about more sort of 
this notion of telepresence and and how do we get people present not just socially not just like at you can't make it to the wedding so then you can participate in the wedding you know remotely but also thinking about the fact that it is an activist platform and and bringing people to other worlds allows us to understand things that we would otherwise understand through the voices of people that are telling those stories and sometimes those people aren't people that you want to trust you know so thinking about this idea of empowerment is is interesting you know usually people are have a profession or they have a role they're a reporter they're a journalist and and they're sort of commissioned to tell a story or bring a story to life and and what's interesting is that you know stories you know there's always that guy in the family member who's a storyteller or there's you know dad or grandpa that that share their stories i mean this is this is a part of us and and so what's interesting now is that we have this technology to empower people that aren't storytellers to share their stories and i think that that's really interesting and i think that this is a really interesting point in time here because one one person that comes to mind is uh, Elizabeth Cochran Seaman, and uh, she's kind of known by her name, Neely Bly, uh, who was an American journalist and, and um, in the 1800s. Um, she basically faked her own insanity to investigate uh, an, an insane asylum in New York. And she did that because she became this kind of story vehicle for other people's stories because she wanted to kind of really uh, break down the walls and to try to expose this, uh, this hospital um, for what it was. And this became this beautiful kind of investigation in, you know, this sort of investigative journalism or this kind of investigative journalism. But what it, what it allowed people to do is to understand the, the, the incredible stories of people that don't have a voice. And, and I think that, you know, empowering people to kind of share their stories, most people don't think of themselves as a storyteller. And it's not that, you know, they haven't had these experiences. It's just about figuring out how do you, how do you, how do you share this ability or how do you give them a voice? Um, one of the stories that we're working on right now is with uh, I'm illustrating a children's book right now that is uh, um, focused on uh, um, sort of daughters with incarcerated parents. And so and, and I've been involved with uh, a great storyteller. Her name is Samantha Thornhill. And, and we focused a documentary on about daughters with incarcerated fathers and this whole idea of how poetry can can really get people to express themselves and talk about things that are very taboo and very difficult and usually things that you're very ashamed of. And so the power of sharing your story and getting your story out there, um, I think is the most important thing that you can do. Um, we're on this life, you know, we're living on this planet only once and some people are dealt these experiences and these experiences may be very difficult and who knows, you know, when they're going to come, but they come. And, and it's important because I think, you know, looking at Neely Bly and sort of traveling to these worlds that you wouldn't normally go to, all of a sudden opens up this sort of these empathetic connections with these incredible individuals that may don't, that may be kind of silenced in their own circumstance. And, and I think that we as, you know, 
individuals or citizens, we, we need to keep sharing these stories in the same way that I filmed this cardiac arrest. And I'm like, okay, how do we share that experience? Because people are still dealing with not being prepared for that experience or this landmine and this elephant, you know, or maybe this very twisted individual in the park. It, it's share your experience and maybe other people will share theirs as well. That wraps up episode four. As always, you can find more about the episode and all of our episodes at www.storiesfromeveryday.com. I always appreciate feedback and constructive criticism. Until next time.